Hello, and welcome to MoMA's Magazine Podcast. I'm Prudence Pfeiffer, Managing Editor of The Creative Team. Last fall, I sat down with poet Tess Taylor to discuss her involvement in the exhibition Dorothea Lang, Words and Pictures, her long-standing interest in mining archives, both personal and artistic, for her writing, and her own pilgrimage to some of the same sites that Lang visited. Hi, I'm Tess Taylor. I'm a poet and a critic. Did you want to start by maybe talking about your um, the project you did for the Dorothea Lang exhibition? Sure, sure. Um, so the thing that's fascinating is I grew up in this neighborhood that Dorothea Lang photographed. It's a town called El Cerrito, California. It's just north of Berkeley. And in fact, you know, Dorothea Lang is a kind of a governing shadow or a sort of grandmother that's in the air in Berkeley. We have friends who live near the house that she would return to after all of these drivings away. And so she, you know, she's somebody who actually helped us all to see California and know what California was. So in some ways, I've been thinking about her for a long time. And my concept was just go back to those places and see them and write about them the way that they are now. And of course, that was partly provoked by thinking about her and growing up in a place that she'd photographed, but it's also provoked by the fact that we're living through a crisis of people living in tents. We are living through a crisis of migrancy and migrants and people who don't have shelter. These issues felt very contemporary to me. I was interested in um, the Forage House project oh. and your own kind of relationship to American history and how, um, and I was just wondering if there was, if you were thinking of that project at all in then looking into this other kind of way of narrativizing or talking about America. Well, it's really interesting that you should mention the Forage House. Um, that's a book that uh, did dig into archive. I have a family history in Virginia, um, and I looked up you know, wills and property maps, um, looking for um, a family that is involved was involved in the slave trade and involved in slavery, and looking for how that history was recorded, or conversely not recorded. You know, it was my first experience with with digging in an archive as an artist, and I found that what was most striking to me was the kind of way that the archive embodied these violent omissions and the sort of strikethroughs um, in the archive. Uh, and as a poet, I think one of the things that we deal with is the dance between absence and presence. So if we are looking at this page, the page has got white space and open space, and it's, it's a form that makes use of absence. That was a project that brought me around to thinking about archives a lot and about how archives have these kind of delicate fragments and shimmering potential and also these haunting spaces in them. With the Dorothea Lang project, I spent a lot of time at the Oakland Museum looking at um, Lang's notebooks. And she traveled with a small kind of pocket-sized notebook, and she would be out there, and then she would kind of run back to the car and kind of write down something that somebody said. And then there's these funny little notes to herself that she makes. Note young trees, note poor man's canyon. So the the way that the notebooks had this kind of process of a gatherer and her sort of endless fascination with the texture of what people were saying and, and hearing. Um, and of course, they're stripped away from her photos, too. So it's it's almost that the the language of the notebook itself had a music to me. I, I just was really enchanted by it. It sort of brought up that same shimmering feeling, um, the the quality of feeling like the the music of her notebooks had the potential for being read as poetry. 
I mean, it's an interesting question. Do you see the photographs as being stripped of language or, or you know, really being still and not, not having language? Or I think she had a really profound relationship with language. And I think that, you know, she's writing actually these beautiful vernacular um, 10-beat lines that are, you know, abandoned house, abandoned, you know, uh, wouldn't undertake to farm this land no more. That's wouldn't undertake to farm this land no more. That's a 10-beat line. That's a piece of, uh, it falls heavily in the ear. and it's But it's just a piece of American vernacular that she picked up along the side of the road. And I also think her, her relationship that I discovered with captioning, where she'd be typing all these captions and sort of playing with the relationship between the photos and the text, um, it says to me that that she had a very active mind for language, and that was a huge part of of how she was thinking. And when there are photographs of hers that have language in them, just in sort of found language with signs, mm-hmm. or, um, do you do you find yourself reading those differently than photographs that don't have language in them? Particularly as someone who's so engaged with words in your own practice. I mean, her photographs that have language in them are always, they're always very sort of forceful kinds of language. They're pictures of sort of the American dream, you know, with people next to the American dream and it's not working out. There's a beautiful picture that's all bulletin boards inside an encampment of where people are going and the notes that people leave to each other. And I think she has this kind of tenderness for that, um... Whether I see the pictures differently, I mean, I think I'm somebody who I, I'm very aural and I live in language. And so, you know, does that overwhelm the experience of an image? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. And this particular poetry project, were there particular photographs you were looking at? Or was it more kind of overall, like her notebooks and thinking through? Well, I mean, I spent time with her contact sheets at the Oakland Museum and, and the Library of Congress in terms of putting this together, I, I kind of wanted to get away from the the pictures that we recognize as sort of iconic. And in some ways, I didn't necessarily even want recognizable people. So there's a, an image of, um, you know, bindles, which are kind of those backpacks alongside a barn somewhere Um on the side of the road, and that kind of feeling of residue, um, human residue, uh, felt sort of timeless to me. Um, you know, something I thought a lot about is just my contemporary landscape in Berkeley right now. I bicycle my child through four encampments on the way to preschool. Uh, homelessness is up 42% over the last two years. It's a phenomenon of the landscape. It's something that we're living with in a way that I, I've never seen at the same time, we're all kind of humbled by how little it seems that we're able to do anything about it as a community and as a city. And parts of the f- photographs that I was looking at felt that they were sort of foreshadowing or helping me see or reminding me just of the landscape that I see every day. And when, I mean, you mentioned that there's a power to the fact that Lang is taking pictures of neighborhoods that you yourself know. Can you remember when you first kind of met Lang in terms of through her through her photographs or, you know, came to really aware of her of her work? Well, I think maybe, you know, seventh grade, like everybody else, you know, the Great Depression and and sometimes those stories are like there was this thing and then there was this sort of courageous person and she helped us see it and then it went away. The idea, of course, that, you know, we still have migrant labor and we still have labor camps and we still have um you know, this mass epidemic of, of shelterlessness. 
those are sort of more the realizations of somebody growing old, growing up. Um, but I was always struck by those images. And they're, you know, they're so beautiful at the level of light and shade and the level of the body. And they have so much, you know, dignity to them, the way that sort of people look you squarely in the eyes. It was interesting going around and doing this project because I was I, I went to all kinds of places. I spent time with a, a group of men who are living um, in 20 tents by the Ashby Bart station. I spent time visiting um, shelters where migrant laborers passed through in the Imperial Valley. Every time I went to a place and I said, I'm doing this because I want to figure out, I'm doing this sort of out of um, memory and respect for Dorothea Lange. Everybody seemed to know who she was. I would say migrant mother. I would say this woman who photographed the Great Depression. And people were disarmed by that in a in a way that was really profound. I mean, I've worked as a journalist and I've gone out and done gumshoe journalism to sort of say I'm a poet who's doing this project, but I'm here, but I want to talk to you. In a, you know, it's sort of it was a little bit of a funny introduction of myself. And yet there was this kind of crazy warmth and and it was because I think people trusted her, even now. <laughs> and I, I'm just curious, since her own notebooks became such an important part of your project, when you were visiting these sites, were you taking notes? What was your own kind of um, work, taking pictures? I don't know. Like, what was your own kind of process? That's such a great question. So I, I read up on her process, and her process was to have a pencil and a small notebook that could fit into her pocket and to be out there and to do her best to sort of enter a landscape, take some time, drink some water, allow people to become at ease with her, and then just talk. And I, I literally just tried to do the same thing. I um, I brought them. I don't have it right out today, but I, ha- I, I had little notebooks the same way and a collection of pencils. And as the project got longer and longer, um, the notebook sort of piled up, and I, I got really paranoid that I would lose them. I had this box, and I would tell my children, don't touch that box of my notebooks. So so that was my method. <laughs> and maybe, if could you just explain the the overall poetry project? It is my visitations and landscapes that I saw and her fragments of text woven in. So it's collaging the present and the past it felt a little bit like hanging um, an elaborate sort of, um, I was calling it a calder or some kind of art piece where it all kind of hangs against itself. And I was really actively pursuing this, you know, by driving out and driving around California for eight months. And I just kept it chronological. So the year passes, the weather changes, the the land goes from being wet to being very dry. Um, we enter fire season. I wanted to be clear that this was sort of a project of pilgrimage that happened in a sort of discrete uh, time period. Um, and that said, within those eight months, we're jumping around between her notes and mine. And um, yeah, there's there's little, I mean, I would think of it more as like a 42-page book of fragments. The process of writing a poem can be seem very mysterious to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in thinking about the labor of writing. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder, and I think, you know, even just 
obviously your project is so interestingly intertwined in Dorothea Lang's own labor in mm -hmm. making these photographs. And I was wondering if you um, could just say a few words about your own process, not even necessarily with this project, but just in general around the labor of writing and, and how you approach it. You know, there's no recipe for getting a poem into the world. I wish there was, but part of what makes it interesting is that there's not, that you have to stay alert to your mind and watch it and watch what might be a poem begin to happen. You know, this thing about thinking about her and thinking about her now was sort of a dream I had, and it's been such an incredible thing to get to have a place to make that dream visible. Um, you know, in the day-to-day, -day, I think... Uh, I am a notebook keeper even when I'm not out in the field. And I do sort of feel that the mind has this strange, slightly other voice that if you tune into it, it has a way of insisting on itself. And so when something like that does come to mind, um, I try to make... I try to make myself available. And sometimes it's really available to one line at a time or a constellation of syllables or to an image or to a dream. Um, and sometimes it's in a way where you think to yourself, I really don't know what this is for, um, but I'm just going to play... Um, play recorder. My friend Carmen Jimenez Smith has a book out this year called Be Recorder. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a good way to, to do it. Um, and, you know... Being willing to take that risk of writing those first lines down, I would say, is a huge part of the process. That's so lovely. I love that. And I totally agree with that about the mind's other voice. That's a little bit impossible to explain other than that. The mind's dictatorial other voice. I do have a little line on the wall um, of my of my office, and it says, the artistic imagination is not dutiful. <laughs> that's great. And I think that's a really important part of it. You know, even knowing that this was becoming a project or even knowing that you want to write about something, the the mind kind of likes to play tricks on itself and skip away from itself and sneak up on you at strange moments. And I think um, part of the process is just staying open to that, to that playfulness and watchful, being watchful. And tell us a little bit about the excerpt of your poem that you're going to be reading today. So I'm going to read two excerpts. Um, one is just from the middle of uh, the book, and it's April 7th of this year, 2019, what it was like to go to Nipomo now. And then I thought I'd just read a little bit towards the end of the project as I'm kind of saying goodbye, a little bit of a, an envoy. April 7th, Nipomo, dusty Sunday, 82 years later, strip mall off the freeway, swap meet, flowers, stucco, heat. Above where pea fields were, three beds, two bath, for sale, and old horse trailers next to the new community, monarch dunes. Below half-hidden valley, the parched walls of Guadalupe and long strawberry fields. Starting out in rain, lettuce fields, pea fields, Salinas Valley, I'd go back if I could ever get the money. To Stockton, Gridley, Lindsay, pickers needed, work lemons, work oranges, work peas. Gritty San Verbena, greenhouse lavenders, somebody's lost flyer calling for $1.1 million trilogy estates. The sign, dear Dorothea, instructs us, please inquire. Underlined, her bold-faced, no promised land. Alejandra and Silvestro hoeing squash on Sunday. 
big work, a little field, but Roger, who is eight, says we can talk if no one's watching. And the peas wait strung in rich dust under the bluff, hoe and stool and boxes inside the snapping wind. Kids on Sunday kick their ball between green houses and below the trestle bridge red breast blackbirds rise above Rancho Number no. 1, Rancho Number no. 2, Exceptos Aplicaciones and Propriedad Privada, no children, visitors, dogs, no trespassing, tu seguridad es primero. Where we was, we wasn't rich, but everybody knew me. Beyond the last field at sunset, dunes ridge and buck the sky. Other planetary, mineral, under this sharp moon, wild churning Pacific, as if this all could give way or begin again. Should we read one more? Sure. Dear Dorothea, I wrote all year at rest stops, on roadsides, at gas stations, in sweltering dust beside the glide church near your old studio, and beside pesticide-sprayed walnut leaves near the sunsweet dryers, also one summer morning when sage and sticky monkey met soft fog off the sea, at labor camps reclaimed by crabgrass and amid tents evicted stoves, near rice paddies of night's landing in a bungalow where lawyers labor to get two toothbrushes to caged children near Esparto where sunflowers sank into their black hulls. At Cordonisi's Creek, behind the brown shingle you came home to, saw one yellow finch near so many billowing tents. I thought about the body, how to house the fragile human in labor, dreams, and rest. That's really great. Um, and I guess just in conclusion, is there anything about um, Dorothea Lang or, you know, this project that you feel like, I mean, I'm, there's, I'm sure tons of things, but that you feel is really central to it that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet? I just think that her ability to see a thing that was emergent and to follow it and to be willing to follow the fact that something incredible was happening. And, you know, she had her pulse on it when she started to see these Okies that were coming to California in the in the 30s. And she noticed suddenly, you know, she has this thing where she's noticing people just showing up at gas stations. And suddenly she says, I started with the gas station and then I saw that this was a trend in the world. I mean, she saw a movement um, at its at its beginning. And, you know, the work that she did in my town, El Cerrito, was really interesting because on the one hand, nearby, the shipyards in Richmond were becoming um, one of America's first desegregated workplaces that where, you know, people out of the South were working together in ways that had never happened before. And at the same time, the town of El Cerrito and the town of Richmond had just gone through Japanese internment and, and sort of an entire population of the town had been taken almost overnight. And and then all these new bungalows were going up this kind of suburban existence that was the opposition to the um, the Great Depression, this kind of end point of, um, of that really painful migration. And she saw all those things at once and the, the contradictions within them. And I think it's that ability in her work to sort of, on the one hand, be so lovely and so beautiful, and on the other hand, sort of tell us such big stories. I'm just in awe of it. Thank you for listening to the magazine podcast. This episode was produced by Isabel Castadio, Natasha Giliberti, Leah Dickerman, Prudence Pfeiffer, 
Our original music was composed by Pablo Altar. You can find more episodes at moma.org magazine.